Good morning, Chapel Hill. My name's Ellis White. I'm a pastoral intern here, and uh, I don't know if it's even worth preaching after having the Eubank family up there and, and sharing what, what they just shared. Every time Dave and his family are here, um, it kind of fires me up. It makes me want to go out there and do uh, bold, uh, amazing things in the name of Jesus. It, it, it's amazing how Dave and his family... Whenever I see them, it, it almost asks questions of, of me and my life. How, how am I living? Am I living the way God wants me to live? Am I living the way that he's called me to live? And honestly, that's a question that we, we all need to struggle with. How, how do we live? How should we live? It's a question we all have to answer. In 2005, Steve Jobs gave the commencement speech at Stanford University. He, he had this to say on the subject of how we should live. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Steve Jobs says, follow your heart and intuition. Don't be trapped by dogma. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. Now, I have to say, there's something really authentic about living life that way. It says that I must be true to myself, that, that I don't want to live a divided life where my actions and my desires don't line up. It's, it's a real kind of holistic way of living. But there's a problem. What if your intuition is leading you astray? What if your heart is, is crooked? Should you still follow your impulses then? If not, how, how then should you live? Because it, the truth and the reality is that our hearts are crooked. They do lead us astray. My heart tells me to eat too much and exercise too little. My heart tells me to get angry at a friend when they've done something wrong to me. My heart tells me to lust after women who aren't my wife. My heart, and I believe all of our hearts, are broken. And we cannot trust them to tell us to do the right thing. In the past few weeks, we've been journeying through the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached. We, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and we've called this series The Revolutionary Disciple. And in this sermon, Jesus is speaking to his followers, and, and there's a whole crowd of people listening in. And, and Jesus is laying out an agenda for what life is like in his kingdom the kingdom of heaven, what life is like for a revolutionary disciple. And he's just told his followers, and, and we heard about this from Pastor Mark last week, that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that they have been given the task by Jesus of making this world a better place so that the world might give glory to God. Well, if that's their task, now the question comes, how should we live? And it's not just a question for Jesus' followers back then. If you were a follower of Jesus in this room today, what Jesus is about to say in the passage we read today applies to you. 
But for the Jews, which was most of the audience that Jesus was speaking to 2,000 years ago, they had a method for living. Their method for living was called the law. That's law with a capital L. Around 2,000 years before Jesus, God began his rescue mission, rescuing this broken, messed up world. And and God was going to choose, and God did choose to do it through a family. And God gave this family, who became known as the people of Israel, a set of laws to show them how they would live in a way that would make them a light to the nations. Now the law, capital L, told the people of Israel what righteousness looked like. That's, that's what right living looked like. But now, Jesus steps onto the scene, and he makes some bold claims about the law as he lays out his agenda for life in his kingdom. So, let's turn to the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. You've got pew Bibles in front of you. When someone finds it in a pew Bible, would you shout out the page number? 816? 816? Yeah? Okay, Matthew 5, 17. And this is Jesus speaking to his followers, and there's a whole crowd of people listening in. Hear the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning I pray that your words would come to life, that we would come to know what it means to be a revolutionary disciple who lives in your kingdom and follows you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, there would be times when the the teacher wasn't able to make class and might have been sick or there might have been some crisis that they had to deal with. And and some of those times, there was no substitute available. So what they would do is they would get another teacher to come in and write some instructions on a whiteboard. Now, these instructions didn't just appear from nowhere. They came from the teacher, and, and they pointed us towards the teacher. And as a class, we knew that. I mean, if there were instructions without a teacher, we probably just would have gone, who are these for? Why, why are they there? Do we, do we need to do them? I don't think so. Uh, they didn't just point us to the teacher. They also pointed us to the teacher's authority. Now, we all know that some teachers teach with more authority than others. And I was at an all-boys school, and we liked to get into mischief whenever we could. So if we knew a teacher didn't teach with authority, we would ignore the instructions, and we would do whatever we wanted because we knew there would be no consequences. But if the teacher taught with authority, that was a different matter, because we knew there would be consequences when the teacher returned. So we made sure to do everything that that board said. And when the teacher did return, it wasn't like the instructions kind of got abolished or thrown away. They, they, they didn't matter anymore. The instructions still held. They were still true. 
But when the teacher came back, they were able to help us to understand what the instructions meant, help us to understand if we got it wrong, help, help interpret them to help us understand what they were really trying to teach us through them. The instructions pointed us to the teacher, and therefore it was the teacher who was really the one we needed to pay attention to, not the instructions. Now, this is the claim that Jesus is making in this passage. He's claiming that he is the teacher who left the Jews the instructions of the law, and now he is back to explain it in full. He's not come to say that the law was wrong, but he has come to correct their understanding of it. Look again, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, which together, the law and the prophets, they made up the whole of the Jewish Bible. It would be what we would call the Old Testament today. And Jesus goes on to make this point that he hasn't come to abolish them even clearer in the next two verses. He says, the law will not pass away until heaven and earth passes away. And he says that the commandments of the law still stand. So Jesus hasn't come to abolish it, but he claims he has come to fulfill it. Now, there's a a variety of opinions over what Jesus means here, but there's a couple of things that it's interesting to note about this word, fulfill. Firstly, it's not the same word that is used in the Bible to talk about obeying or keeping commandments. It's a different word from that. So Jesus couldn't have just meant that he came to obey or to keep the law. And the second thing is that Matthew in his gospel uses this word fulfill all the time when he quotes from the law and the prophets. In fact, if you go this afternoon after the Seahawks game, of course, or tomorrow, and you go and read the first four chapters of Matthew, you will see him quote from the Old Testament, from the Law and the Prophets all the time, and, and he will usually preface that quote with something like, this was to fill, this was to fulfill what was written, dot, dot, dot. So as you read those statements, you see that Matthew understands this word to mean something more like complete, or consummate. It's more like the fulfillment of prophecy, like in the Lego movie I watched last week. Anyone else see that? Yeah? Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. When uh, in the Lego movie, Emmett, who's this just ordinary Lego man, is the one who is supposed to fulfill the prophecy. Well, well Jesus came to fulfill or complete, or, or consummate what the law and the prophets said. The law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. He was the one who was going to complete them. The law and the prophets, they were all about Jesus. Jesus was the law giver. He was that teacher, like back in my high school, who wrote the instructions on the whiteboard. And if this is so, if this is true, Jesus then has the authority, like the teachers in my high school had the authority, to come back and explain what they really meant, to help us understand it better, to correct us where we got it wrong. Jesus has the authority to tell us what the law really means, what right living really looks like, to tell us what authentic righteousness is. But Jesus starts by telling us what it isn't. Take a look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were were kind of the religious bigwigs of the day. 
Unless your righteousness surpasses them, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, right living doesn't look like what you think it looks like. You think it looks like the religious people, the holy people, the people who think that they've got it right, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But I say to you that you need to be even more right than they are to enter my kingdom. And do you know how Jesus describes the the righteousness of, of those religious people later in Matthew's gospel? He calls them hypocrites. He describes them as whitewashed tombs, appearing righteous on the outside, but inside full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Hypocrites. It's easy to point the finger at uh, at hypocrites, but in all honesty, most of us live a lot of our lives like that. I've got some confessions that I want to make to you this morning. Um, I don't know if you do this the same in Gig Harbor. I'm sure there's more than one person like myself who, who does this sort of thing. But sometimes I put on workout clothes and I don't go to the Y. Um, I go out and I go and get a big frappuccino, yeah? <laughs> and, and I sit there and I drink it and I think everyone around me is going, he deserves that. He's clearly been working out. I don't know. I'm sure no one else has ever done that. Something else I do is, uh, let's say I was going to go out for dinner with, with, with your family, and uh, I might like to, to kind of make you think that I like to eat healthy. And so I, I'd probably order a salad. But the reality is I know full well that two hours later, I am going to be starving. <laughs> and I will go home and eat half a tub of ice cream. Or if you came over for dinner at our house, you would come in and it would be spotless, beautifully clean. Well, the reality is that we all know that when you invite guests over, you can get the house clean faster in 10 minutes than you can in the whole of the rest of the week. (laughs) You see, we're all hypocrites. We all like to appear righteous when inside we're full of hypocrisy. We're all like those religious people in Jesus' day. And Jesus says, our righteousness needs to go beyond that. It needs to go deeper than that. Jesus says, our righteousness must be authentic. Jesus says, our righteousness must come from our hearts, our desires, our wills. Authentic righteousness is deeper than actions. It's about the desires of the heart. Take a look at where Jesus goes next, verse 21. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus starts here by quoting from the law from the Ten Commandments. I'm sure you recognize it. Do not murder. He is, in effect, illustrating what the righteousness of the religious people look like. He says that that for them, righteousness looks like not murdering. But then he drops the bomb. Jesus says, but I say, and remember, Jesus has the authority to tell us what the law really means. Jesus says, but I say that even if you get angry with someone, That's the same as murdering them. Jesus says, even if if you insult someone, which is what that word raka was, it was an insult like idiot or fool. 
Even if you insult someone, that's the same as murdering them. Because it shows where your heart is. Jesus says in his kingdom, righteousness penetrates to the heart, deep down to our desires. Jesus says not only shouldn't you murder, you shouldn't even get angry at someone. As part of my training uh, to become a pastor here at Chapel Hill, I've been given some leadership development training, and and one part of that was a a personality assessment to help me become more self-aware. It's called an Enneagram, and some people claim it has its origins in a 4th century Christian mystic who lived in Alexandria. His name was Evagrius Ponticus. That's a cool name. There are nine different personality types in this assessment, and uh, this past week I went back and reread through my top type, and just in case you're into this sort of thing, my top type is number three, which is the achiever. Now, I, I already knew I had a tendency to get angry. Um, I, I, I've seen that several times in my life. Um, my wife has the ability to point that out as well. Um, <laughs> But what was interesting was the, the description I read this week about what this personality type can be at its very worst. It said this. Remember, this is the very worst. This isn't me, okay? <laughs> this person can become vindictive, attempting to ruin others' happiness, relentless, obsessive about destroying whatever reminds them of their own shortcomings and failures, psychopathic, murderous. Apparently, anger does lead to murder in the very worst instances. Jesus says that at the heart of right living is not our actions, but our desires, our hearts. It's not simply refraining from murder, but not getting angry. Jesus' authentic righteousness is not just acting right in spite of your desires, but having right desires and acting out of them. Let me say that again. Jesus' authentic righteousness is not just acting right in spite of your desires, but having right desires and acting out of them. Jesus says that authentic righteousness is not just refraining from murder despite feeling angry, but rather not getting angry in the first place, and hence not murdering. And he will go on to say, and we'll hear this next week, that authentic righteousness is not refraining from adultery despite feeling lust, but rather never lusting in the first place, and hence not committing adultery. Authentic righteousness is when your desires and your actions line up, and both of those things line up with Jesus' desires and Jesus' actions. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying, if you don't have the desire to act right, then you get a free pass. Jesus is not saying, just follow your heart. Jesus says, he did not come to abolish the law. Jesus says, you must act right. But Jesus says, the authentic righteousness, the kind that goes beyond the religious leaders, goes to the heart. Authentic righteousness is when you not only do what is right, but when you want to do what is right. But I've got a problem with that. I can't control my desires. I don't know about you. Maybe you're at a higher level of human ability than than the rest of us. But I think that's true of most of us here. 
I can try and grit my teeth and try hard, but I still get angry. I can work really, really hard and and do all sorts of things, but I still end up lusting. So Jesus, how do you expect us to change something that we cannot control? As I was preparing for this message, our choir director, our awesome choir director, Margie Dickerson, popped into my office and handed me an essay written by a 19th century Scottish pastor, professor, scientist, evangelist, explorer, author, and missionary. Basically, this guy was an overachiever. I think he was probably a type 3 personality as well. His name was Henry Drummond. And in it, he says this. Souls are made sweet, not by taking the acid fluids out, but by putting something in. A great love, a new spirit, the spirit of Christ. Christ, the spirit of Christ, interpenetrating ours, sweetens, purifies, transforms all. This only can eradicate what is wrong, work a chemical change, renovate and regenerate and rehabilitate the inner man. Willpower does not change men. Time does not change man. Christ does. Like I said before, I have a a tendency towards anger, but there, there have been times in my life when I've been following hard after Jesus, when I've noticed a lack of anger when there normally would be. About five years ago, I was working for a bookstore at a a, a set of back-to-back large Christian conferences in the UK. Now, we do Christian conferences properly in the UK. We don't have a nice plush conference center or a big sports arena and lovely hotel beds. No, we meet in a tent (laughs) on a farm, and we sleep in little tents, all 10,000 of us. And one day after work... um, and, and bear in mind, this, this is a Christian conference. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these big gatherings. There's, there's something that, that can change you about setting aside a period of time to focus on Jesus, to focus on worshiping him, on praying to him, on, on studying his word, about, about putting aside that time of your life. And, and I did this for five weeks one summer. And one day after work, and, and, and this incident may seem trivial, but it sticks out in my memory. I was, I was going back to my tent, and I arrived, and I saw that my taillight on my car had been knocked out, and, and, and there was a big kind of dent in the back of the car as, as well. This isn't actually a photo of that. I just found that on Google Images. That's authentic. Um, now, normally, I would have been fuming. I would have been furious. I would have been beside myself. I would have wanted to wring the neck of the person who had done it. But there was this strange, just deep sense of, of peace. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a feeling of anger. I didn't have a... I, I can't explain it. And later on that night, my boss came to me and said, I, I don't understand you earlier. If that was me, I would have been fuming. I would have been furious, but you weren't. That doesn't make any sense. I agreed. It didn't make any sense. Or there was another time, two summers before that, when I went on my first missions trip to Kenya. That's a a picture of of me in Kenya. And 
when I was there, this was a time when I really had to learn to rely upon Jesus in a way that I never had, when I was really pursuing him in a way that I hadn't before. And part of the trip involved a lot of service of other people. And if I'm honest, service is not my spiritual gift. And I find it really difficult to do menial tasks for others. Even to this day, I I have to fight against the urge to just sit there and let others serve me. I'm not the person who jumps up and makes coffee kind of naturally for others. But on that trip, something happened. I was transformed and changed as I pursued Jesus, as I relied upon him. I began to want to serve others. In fact, I came back, and, and the girl I was, I was dating at that time said to me, you've changed. You're, you're too selfless. <laughs> you need to be more selfish. The only path to authentic righteousness The only way that right desires and right actions can line up is through Jesus. The law could not do it. The law was powerless to do it. But the law pointed us to Jesus, the one who can do it. And we cannot do it. We are powerless to do it. So we must point ourselves to Jesus, the one who can do it. Jesus called his disciples saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and make yourself a fisher of men. Try harder. Be better. No, Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is the only one who has the power to transform us. He is the only one who can change our hearts, our desires. And he will give us a new heart. He will write the law onto our hearts. It is promised in the scriptures. When we delight in him, in Jesus, he will change the desires of our hearts. It is only in and through Jesus Christ that we should ever follow our hearts. Because it is only in and through Jesus Christ that our hearts can be made right. So follow him and let him transform you from the inside out.